0: That's Stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
1: I think we'll start with... Uh, Syria will read a passage, and then I will ask some polite and impolite questions.
2: So, um, this book has... There are 20 uh, narrative voices, but at the center of the book is the woman that was mentioned, Harriet Burden. And uh, she's dead Uh, when the book starts. We know that. She's died. And um, an editor introduces this text, um, which is uh, supposedly a work uh, that has been collected because people have become interested in her work after her death. But I'm going to read... Uh, I'm actually skipping around a little bit But it's um, from fairly deep in the book And it's from Notebook B I am 10 in the memory Am I 10? Maybe I am 11 I cannot feel 10 or 11 anymore, really, can I? No, but I am inside this memory I'm inside my body I've walked from R- Riverside Drive to Philosophy Hall on a Saturday to surprise Father. Why have I done it? What possesses me? An idle whim? A plan? No. I am just walking in the spring air, and I decide to walk there. The day is sunny after a rain, sun over puddles. That seems right. And it comes into my head that I am so close to Father's office And I walk through the doors and climb into the elevator But I am nervous Yes, some anxiety is attached to this bold move I have been to his office before As he dashes in to pick up papers while I wait with Mother There is a smell in the grey hall A dry smell like erasers It is never noisy, hushed but with a hum White noises, I guess, and low voices here and there, as if these are the sounds of mental work, of thoughts. I knock. He must say, come in. But this I don't really remember. I see him before me at his desk and the window behind him. The light is hazy. The glass is smudged. His head is down. He looks up. Harriet, what are you doing here? You should not be here. It has nothing to do with you. Harriet, you should not be here. The 10- or 11-year-old is flummoxed. I'm sorry. Do I say I'm sorry? I think so, but this is crucial. What is the tone of his voice? Angry? I doubt it. Strict? Puzzled? Perhaps puzzled, but I can't recall this accurately. (coughs) What I recall is the drawing in of my breath, the pang, the shame. Why shame? This I know. I am deeply ashamed. In the memory, he says nothing more. He looks down at the papers in front of him, and I leave. But is this possible? Maybe he escorted me to the door, and in the shifting eddies of recollection, those steps with my father to the door have disappeared. Maybe he patted my shoulder. He did pat my shoulder sometimes. And sometimes, too, I heard a hint of musical softness in his voice. I learned to listen for it, a crack in the tone that lifted a vowel into another register, not fully controlled. And something broke for an instant, as if he had seen me, his child, seen and loved Mother is lying in bed. I hold her hand and idly look at the protruding veins in it, the palest of greens. I wouldn't have recalled that if I hadn't said to myself, her veins through her skin are the palest of greens. Words consolidate memories. Emotion consolidates memories. Something has happened to mother after father's death, and she is telling now, telling her life, telling me that my father did not want the baby. When she told him she was pregnant, he did not speak to her for two weeks. I feel the cramp of emotion, but I don't want her to stop. After I was born, I want to know, was it okay then? It took some time, my mother says, before he got used to you. Your father loved you, of course. Hume couldn't find anything to hold on to, no self in the bundle of perceptions that become memories, imperfect identity. He did not want me. But this is nonsense, Harriet. Isn't it nonsense? How many men have not wanted their unborn infants? Millions. How many women, for that matter? And how many have come to want them once the little thing has arrived, is out, is real, millions and yet it took some time she said and there is the feeling as is as if i'd been kicked as if it had all become clear as if a door had opened to a truth and i look into the room and there is the thing that has been born there is something wrong with it count the toes But I would first ask you to note that I do not attribute to nature beauty, ugliness, order, or confusion. It is only with respect to our imagination that things can be said to be beautiful or ugly, well ordered, or confused. That's a quote from Spinoza to his friend Oldenburg in his letters. I'm skipping ahead. What moron said the past was dead? The past is not dead. Its phantoms own us. They own me. They have a stranglehold on me. But I don't know if the revenants can be dispelled. Maybe I will just have to keep working. The studio is burgeoning with the unseen works the myriad monstrosities by someone named Harriet Burden. Maybe when the revelation comes, the proverbial scales will fall from their eyes. Maybe when I'm dead, some wandering art critic will come to the building where the goods are stored and look, really look, because the person, me, will finally be missing. Yes, nodding wisely, my imaginary critic will stare for a long time, and then utter, Here is something, something good, rescued from oblivion like Judith Laster Then again, what if it's all crap anyway, despite my precious pseudonyms, the ones they desire rather than me, not me? But tonight, as I sit. Here at my desk and look out at the water at winter, at the night, at the shining city, I feel a grief that has no object I can name. Not Felix or my father or my mother, just now it came hard upon me, the grievous ache, but for what? Is it simply that there is so much less in front of me than behind me? Is it for the child called Harriet who walked with her head down? Is it for the old woman I am becoming? Is it because the fury of ambition has not been beaten out of me, not yet? Is it for the ghosts that have left their tracks inside me? Yes, Harry, it's the ghosts. But our names ghosts too insubstantial? Do you want to see your name in lights? Up on the marquee, vanity of vanities, the letters assigned to you at birth, designation of your paternity, paternal lights? Is that what you hope for? But why, Harry? Your father did not want the burden borne, his squalling, burdensome little burden, but there you were. He came around. Did he, Harry? Did he really? Not to your satisfaction, I would say, didn't he prefer Felix? Didn't even your mother favor Felix? Didn't she say to you, you mustn't be too hard on Felix? Didn't she fuss over him, protect him? Yes, but she loved me. Yes, she did, but your work? She didn't understand my work. It's coming up, Harry. The blind and boiling, the insane rage that has been building and building since you walked with your head down and didn't even know it. You are not sorry any longer, old girl, or ashamed for knocking at the door. It is not shameful to knock Harry you are rising up against the patriarchs and their minions. And you, Harry, you are the image of their fear, Medea, mad with vengeance. That little monster has climbed out of the box, hasn't it? It isn't nearly grown yet, not nearly grown. After Finney, there will be one more. There will be three, just as in the fairy tales. Three masks of different hues and countenances so that the story will have its perfect form. Three masks, three wishes, always three. And the story will have bloody teeth. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you.
1: I I had no idea what portion of the book Siri would read. And um, having read this, it seems that I should take a different tact. It's a really wonderful book for those of you who haven't read it. And one of its many virtues is the incredible strength of its many different voices. And here, this is from the diary entry of Harriet Burden, who is also known as Harriet Lord, her married name. And one of the things invoked in this passage, or one of the things I thought about, is that not all of us seem as desperate for recognition as others. Yes. And I've often wondered what it is. And it seems to me there's a hint about paternal love or the seeking of it that
2: uh, is a key driver in the bid for recognition. Oh, I think in this case there's a whole fairly elaborate psychological story that's told from different positions including Harry. I mean she remembers this story about her father but there are other memories in the book and then there are um, other commentaries especially from a close friend of hers where, who's a psychoanalyst so uh, Conveniently. Uh, so absolutely there. this is um, a psychological and a sociological story It's very deeply about her psyche and that she's also involved in a degree of self-sabotage. What, for you, is the difference between recognition and fame? Because they both come up regularly in the book. I think that... Actually, there are probably three categories. Recognition, fame, and celebrity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that recognition is something very deep it's something actually human beings need you know even early in life if it goes wrong I mean there's a lot of infant research about this early dialogues even pre-verbal dialogues between an infant and its mother and uh, that we need to be recognized by the other to become normal human beings um so that's a very essential human need some form of recognition Fame is usually assigned to people for something they've done You know, you're famous for being a great sports star Or for writing books or making art Or being a politician Something you've done Celebrity, you don't need to do anything (laughs) Um, I mean, we have a great many people who are celebrities And celebrity is about image being bought and sold On the open market as a commodity so it's the emptying out of subjective inner reality for the external image that can then be bought and sold. So those are those are three distinctions, I think. I love it. Makes yeah. perfect sense to me.
1: <laughs> I wonder, do you have categories for the other side of things, the kind of lack of recognition? Are there levels of obscurity and yes. pain yes. and misery yes, associated
2: are. on there the other are, side? There are actually, this is... Um, My husband, who's a novelist and a writer Paul Esther, has been getting Manuscripts from someone That are quite good, he says I haven't read them for Years And this writer, uh, a man Simply cannot get Published He just can't get the work Published Um, I have known, you know As a literary person A number of people who have Suffered that kind of lack of recognition and continue to write and that that's terrible I think that's a that's really really hard so that's the bottom line and then there are many levels beyond that you know when people first you just want to get published and then you want a few readers I mean I remember very well I published a tiny book of poems 1981 with the small press and there was a bookstore in Manhattan that got four copies and one day I walked into the bookstore and one of them was gone (laughs) and I I remember I said to myself a stranger bought my book (laughs) and sometimes when I'm feeling aggressively ambitious I always say to myself strangers are buying your books you know a book is always read only one person at a time it's a very intimate thing Um, Unlike movies, for example, which are more collective, or even going to a museum and looking at visual art, uh, it's entirely private. The book is invented by the reader to a huge extent. I always remember that one copy that was
1: missing. Wonderful. Amongst the, you know, the twenty different voices, there are many different comments on fame and recognition and celebrity. And I have a few quotes here that I'd love you to unpack for us. When expert credentials are attached to a woman's name, the bias disappears. For artists, expertise is fame. Sex and color don't disappear,
2: they no longer matter. It's Harry. Well, this is true to some to some extent. Actually, just before I left, I read a very sobering study that was uh, published in the New York Times. Six thousand five hundred university professors were sent the same letter that was an application for a PhD program, and the only difference was that they attached um, male names, a male name, female name, and then also ethnically identifiable names. And in the United States, so it was a clearly Asian name, a clearly Hispanic name. And these were 6,500 university professors of, you know, from varying backgrounds and obviously both sexes. And uh, they hugely favored the name that was a white male name. And this is, of course, not because these people think that they harbor these kinds of biases, it's because there's a a form of implicit or unconscious bias that they're simply not aware of at all and uh, this book was really meant to be a book about perception so that the reader participates in these very different perceptions of the same story and to understand a little bit more how some of these perceptual biases work because we see what we expect to see if we have no past experience, we can't really perceive. And, um, and you know, there's a lot of uh, neuroscientific evidence, too, about this now. It's um, unconscious perceptual inference. We all do it. No one's exempt. It's worth noting
1: that I think one of the most wonderfully warm and captivating straight white men I've read recently is the character of Bruno Kleinfeld, who's uh, Harriet Burden's boyfriend. And I'll just cite a quote here. You know, he's very funny and self-effacing, but he's definitely lost himself and partly lost himself in his own white straight maleness. And he says, uh, when he met Harriet, he said, I was no longer the hero of my own life. Instead, I was lurking in the proverbial shadows as some goddamn minor character with only a couple of lines of dialogue here and there. Uh, one of the, the less attractive men in the book is uh, <laughs> Rune Larson, who is, some British critics have likened him to Damien Hurst, although I think... Perhaps he bears closer resemblance in certain senses to Jeff Coons, um, and he's certainly not any of them. He's no, he, he is yeah. he is his own unique character. There's no doubt about it. And he he does kind of drive the plot. And just to a few quotes about him, uh, John Wayne with a touch of swish. Uh, he was quote wildly indifferent to the opinions of others. And uh, my favorite. Deafness is part of his being, and it helps him, helps him assert himself as the young wonder man. He, I don't want to give away the plot too much, but I'd really love to know how you researched this character of Rune Larsen, Larson by name, Larceny by nature, and developed him as a kind of visual character, as a, as a spoken character.
2: Well, the, the answer is really easy. I, I didn't research him at all. <laughs> you know, I have, uh, I have written about art, some contemporary artists, but mostly about about dead people. I published a book on painting, and the, a third of my most recent book of essays is about art and artists. So I have a, a feeling for it. I know a number of people who work in the art world. So I think it just He just emerged Near the end of the book You know from the very beginning That she gets involved with him From the editor's introduction So that's not at all a secret And near the end of the book His sister comes out of the woodwork And talks a little bit about their childhood So you begin to understand More About him as a damaged person As well as a celebrity Art star yeah. Another character, Phineas
1: Q. Eldridge, one of the other artists in the book, um, seems to me to be the most grounded, clear-headed, and, and least conflicted of your characters. And he also happens to be a mixed-race transvestite who performs as Lester Hester, a half male, half female, yeah. um, half black, half white. So it's kind of intriguing me that the least conflicted character is Phineas, I'd love you to talk a bit about that. Well,
2: you're absolutely right, and I don't even know if I had thought about that before, but now that I do, I think it's probably because he, in his very person, uh, crosses these binaries that are disturbing the book, male, female, um, in his, his case, black, white. And so the the piece that he fronts for Harry, um, who is a white woman, uh is interpreted enormously through the fact that he's black and gay. So there's something deeply ironic, of course, about these interpretations um, of that work. But I think Finney is is a person who's actually spent a good deal of time thinking about his position in the world. And he's one of the characters who points out that if Harriet wasn't rich, she wouldn't be able to do what she's doing. So he's another perspective altogether. I, I really like him. And I guess as the middle part of the fairy tale, that collaboration is the most successful. It really is a collaboration. And um, he's happy to come out and announce that he was a front there's a footnote uh, written by
1: the editor of the book, which cites a Siri Hutzvet. No, it's
2: no, it's it's even more complicated. It's a footnote to Harry's to Harry's, Harry's pseudonymous yes. anonymous text. Exactly, yes. exactly. <laughs> Harry is Harry has
1: Notebook H, and in Notebook H, she discusses or refers to the work of Hutzvet. and uh, I can't remember if it's the. Editor or Harry refers to your previous novel, The Blindfold, as a
2: textual transvestite. Yes. Which I think it is, actually. But, you know, this okay, this, this moment <laughs> in the book is a very strange moment. I mean, this is the moment when Harriet's supposed to be revealing herself, and she chooses to do it in a fairly obscure academic journal called The Open Eye, which is about perception. And she does it under a pseudonym of... Richard Brickman, which is the name she chooses when she's playing a kind of devious masculine-feminine game with Runa in Nantucket where he visits her. This is the most heavily Kierkegaardian moment of the book because the whole thing is filled with irony upon irony upon irony. And the text is so complex that the editor is a bit muddled. Um, Harry is actually... Smarter than this academic editor, man or woman, we don't know, Ivy Hess. And um, so the mention of myself is... A fun, self-reflexive moment for the reader. Heavily, also heavily (laughs) ironic. You don't know in this text exactly when irony begins or ends in that particular Richard Brickman text, and you also don't know when parody begins or ends. So I put myself... In there as an ironic signal to what is actually outside of the book, which is me. <laughs> One of the
1: very amusing things for me as someone who writes about the art world. Uh, were your characterization of the art critics and, you know, The Open Eye as that journal. Various of them write for hilariously titled magazines (laughs) like the neo-situationist Bugle and Visibility, a magazine of the arts, you know, and The New Yorker uh, seems to be referred to as the Gothamite. And that's where they have very rigorous fact checking, which, of course, leads to all sorts of factual errors I actually found the critics just to be... Uh, well, that does venture into parody, I presume. Yes, I mean, I, yes, I laughed yes, out loud. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it, yes, I really does. enjoyed yeah. that. Going back to fame and celebrity, I think another wonderful quote from the book is, celebrity is life in the third person. Some people are better at living in the third person than others. And I wondered if you thought this was at all
2: gendered. It probably is, although we can certainly think of female instances of this. Um, It actually happens that people I mean, this is a baseball player, so most of you won't know who he is, but Reggie Jackson was a hugely popular American baseball player who began to talk about himself in the third person as Reggie Jackson. And I think it's a form of recognition that one has become a commodity. And if you listen carefully, you'll see that people do this they just shift into talking about themselves as a thing as a and in a way as an object that is desirable so I think this really is true even to the extent that people will use the third person to talk about themselves in some ways it's a reasonable recognition of the role that these people are playing in the culture in another way it's a little frightening their alienation from their media representations, perhaps. That's, that's right, and maybe that's healthy, you know. So there are two ways to look at it, but you know, again, I think the the glow of certain aspects of our culture, whether it's um, masculinity or uh, celebrity or money, these are qualities that affect our perceptions which is the point I mean we've all seen this happen you know it's the old use of the word glamour which is a kind of magic and there was a wonderful study done in California about wine a bottle of wine that they told the people they were drinking a $90 bottle of wine or a $10 bottle of wine And then, of course, now, as is totally fashionable in the world of neuroscience, they did brain scans, which are not, I have to say, they are not what you think many people think they are. It is not looking straight at the brain. It's a very complex process. Nevertheless, um, what they found was that uh, when people... drank the $90 bottle of wine, there appear to be different physiological brain processes at work. That's enough to say. So that when we have these experiences, we really are having a different physiological experience. It's not just that people are dim-witted. It's that their experience of wine or art or a book or whatever it is is actually enhanced, And I like to say this, which I've never written, but I've said it certainly before. Art is like sex. If you don't relax, you won't enjoy it. (laughs) And um, it is funny, but it's also, I'm really serious about it. The openness to a work of art is what counts. And what celebrity and fame and these aspects, these qualities can do is open people to an experience and then they have a better time. Yeah. What bias often does is closes you off from the artistic experience, whatever it is. Yeah. And that can be even bias against very famous artists, for example. That can create bias. Yeah. Another kind. Oh, it can't be good. That's certainly the case with Damien Hirst in this country at the moment. He's yes, the, I he's think the negative, people, You know, uh, if you make so example. much money, then people. You know, people want to topple you. That's another form of bias. You know, it's not what's happening to Harry, who's just desperate for people to look. Look, but no, there are many forms of it.
1: Do you think the literary world is as dependent as the art world is on persona and fame?
2: No, I think it's less dependent. I mean, I think we certainly have some of that. But I think it's less dependent on it for the simple reason that books are endlessly reproducible. Books have a larger audience. And, you know, artworks are the idea of authenticity, even though you have multiples and other this, that that still is is important, and you also have a very small world of huge collectors that are spending many many millions of dollars and are in a sense competing against one another. So you know, I I just bought a Jeff Koons and I paid you know fifty four million dollars for Balloon Dog Orange, and then some collector in Japan or China or Germany says i want to buy one of those and you know they they egg each other on and then you have these prices that are beyond what i can at least assimilate <laughs> Books are not like that. There are huge bestsellers that function in a similar way. Everybody gets to, you know, but everybody gets to share the experience. So something like Harry Potter is a collective cultural experience where millions of people are having the same experience. But in the art world, that's not everybody gets to own, you know, Balloon Dog Orange. True, true. I mean, um, I guess you can go to the museum, but it's not the same, quite the same. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. I
1: mean, the art world is a is a broad and diverse place, and that is perhaps one sector of it. Yeah. The art market uh, more than the whole art
2: world. And they're very different. They're very different kinds of hugely expensive artists. I wrote two essays about Gerhard Richter. Um, the second one, because he, he wanted me to do it again, so to speak. And Richter is a occupies a very different place, even though he's enormously expensive, hugely expensive. And wealthy. And wealthy. But he doesn't parade a celebrity persona in the way that someone like Damien Hurst or Jeff Koons does. And I think that makes him less vulnerable to mm-hmm. the kinds of attacks that they receive.
0: dot stamps.com code program
1: absolutely he's kind of the the counter example do you think the literary world is as sexist as the art world the art world in the blazing world comes across
2: as you know the numbers I mean the numbers are kind of uh, uh, not so terribly different about 20% of all solo shows in New York are by women I think it's Getting a bit better Um, You know the Percentage of books reviewed by Men in the United States Is certainly a a Significant majority so you know This goes on this is this is not Over you know I Actually I said this on the news Yesterday Uh, how many times Have you heard someone say I was Just interviewing a really important Man writer (laughs) No one says that but you know, the word woman writer kind of trips off of our tongues, and so does a woman artist. You know, anything, as Finney says in the book, he didn't really know why Harry wanted him, because he was pretty much all hyphen. So I think, you know, the moment that, I mean, what Simone de Beauvoir said in The Second Sex, now written quite a long time ago, 49, I believe it was published, um, is that the universal remains masculine. And uh, we have masculinized and feminized ideas. So literature, art, all the arts have a suspiciously feminine smell in our culture. Uh, Science does not. Uh, Science probably since especially since the 17th century, has been very much uh, a masculine pursuit with a masculine persona attached. So, I mean, I notice this when I give lectures about neuroscience and philosophy at conferences, my audiences are about 75% male. Um, in literature, it's reversed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these are interesting things. So a woman who's doing science is in a sense masculinized by the enterprise. Um, a woman doing literature is twice feminized. And I think the only way to uh, the, the only way to get over this, if we ever get over it, is to have a, a cultural conversation, for people to be aware of it. I think it's still uh, mostly implicit. People are uncomfortable talking about it, especially in the deeper ways. Mm-hmm. You know, what are we doing? What does it mean? Why is it like this? Is it that women give birth and that's like creativity enough? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, no, I'm really serious. There, you know, there are all kinds of theoretical um, positions uh, about what misogyny is, and uh, and. It's kind of mysterious On the other hand Women in England and America Have not even had the vote For a hundred years That's one long lifetime Think about it Just one long lifetime So in a way It's not so strange That, <laughs> that this is still happening I mean a century is a drop in the bucket And we haven't even hit that yet
1: Unfortunately, I think I left another quote down on the printer downstairs, but it actually pertained exactly to this, Um, you know, how women can find it hard to be taken seriously during the period in which they're considered sexually attractive, and that actually menopause in old age
2: can be liberating and something to be embraced, perhaps. With Uh, women artists, I mean, there's one character in the book, Rosemary Lerner, who's a kind of sensible, level-headed writer, and she points this out, that especially with women artists that once a person has passed that phase of being sexually desirable that it's much easier to be taken seriously this is an interesting thing and as i said this is not about men it's about all of us and i like to use it's a it's a fictional example but you know you look across the room at a party and there's this beautiful young woman really Gorgeous in a sexy dress. And one person says to the other, You mean she's getting her second postdoc in molecular biology at Rockefeller? You know, we don't we don't we don't go there. And I don't mean just again, it's not just it's a it's a kind of undertone that the beautiful young woman is codified in ways that are not that are not free really not free and that's tough I think and I know that I have a friend who's a physicist who said that there are very few women in physics as you may know but he knows some women in physics that would always start their careers you know wearing dark clothes and just trying to blend in as well as they could And once they had attained stature, published like a super-duper paper, and their peers were deeply impressed, their sartorial freedom (laughs) would emerge, and suddenly, like, high heels would come out of the closet. And I found this a wonderful story about freedom, you know, that these trappings of femininity and masculinity in the culture, you know, it's not to say... You know, everybody should be a clone of everybody else Or that the sartorial freedom, for example That women have that men don't have, mostly Is not a good thing I mean, my fantasy would be that men would gain more sartorial freedom In a more fair world And and maybe they have You know, the metrosexual is a type in New York I don't know if it's a type in, in It's global It's global Yeah Okay
1: so just a, a final set of comments and questions before we open it up to the audience. Um, the it, the literary world does love to loathe the art world. And, you know, the very sympathetic Bruno Kleinfeld, as he puts it, the art world is, quote, a stinkhole of vain posers who buy names to launder their money. And, of course, uh, none of us here, I'm sure, would want to try to defend the excesses of the art market and, uh, the corruption that goes on there but the art world is a very large place and there are many hard-working artists with no recognition at all much like the novelist that you described and in my experience they're often dyslexic and don't read books but are working with uh, you know different kinds of intelligences Harriet Burden is a, a very compelling, intelligent woman, and a and a wonderful character. But oftentimes, I've felt like perhaps she was more of a writer than an artist. Partly because she kind of thought with words rather than with images, and kind of was act, uh, kind of more obsessed with uh, that way of thinking. Um, than, than what she was seeing and, and so I was wondering How you felt about that there, comment There
2: is actually a precedent um, And uh, it's an artist that I'm deeply interested in And uh, she is referred to in the novel And um, I have written an essay on her And it's Louise Bourgeois Louise Bourgeois was an intellectual She wrote extremely well I mean, if you're interested You should read her notebooks Apparently now, after her death They have found trunks full of her writing. Uh, There was a moment in her life when she thought of becoming a psychoanalyst, not abandoning her art, but becoming an analyst, a child analyst quite specifically. Her work is deeply involved, I think, with her sensitivity and knowledge of psychic structures. So she's, she's a very good precedent for Harry, Um, who is, I just want to add, I was quite intentionally creating uh, a person who I think of as a kind of monster, a monster I love. I will say I love her, but she's someone who is intentionally breaking the boundaries of disciplines, of of gender divisions, uh, of uh, every binary that you can think of. So she's not entirely successful. She can't really get out of her own, I think, um, psychic straitjacket. But nevertheless, there are highly literate and highly intelligent artists that I've known. Um, John Baltasari... Who's an admirer of my art essays? I have to say is a very articulate and intelligent person that you talk to in your book, and he He's you have rend, some lovely, yeah, lovely quotes John. from. And um, so, so I think there's you're absolutely right. There are a number of artists who you know are not readers and who have a very much wholly visual imaginations, but but there are others who don't. And of course, for the sake of of fiction. Harry identifies with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Frankenstein's monster. Um, Milton runs throughout this book, sometimes in ways that, you know, unless you've recently read Paradise Lost, you wouldn't know. But the diction, Harry's diction, at one point she is reading uh, Paradise Lost, and Milton's Satan is hiding under Harry, too. And, of course, Satan, Milton's Satan was hiding under Mary Shelley's monster and Frankenstein. So um, my impulse, of course, was not to make you want every character to be believable. But Harry is a gigantic, you know, character who can dance from one discipline to another. I mean, she's meant to explode the categories that we normally trap ourselves inside. Well, I actually find her
1: very believable, but it's, it's, it's almost like she targeted the wrong world.
2: <laughs> yes, well, that could be. That could be, for sure. Would anyone like to ask
1: questions? I have to admit, I haven't read your book. Uh, okay. I've read other <laughs> books of yours, and um, I w- was struck with the um, bit you read to us, about the father relationship and the father just sort of touching the shoulder and how much Harry had craved for it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember that very
3: same picture from your book The Shaking
2: Woman. So, I think shoulder. it's not in The Shaking Woman, but oh, there's, it it's the definitely, thing? there's an essay I wrote called My Father Myself in which I talk about a certain estrangement from my father. I don't know if you um, read I, that. I haven't read In that. The, but, the, the um, shaking women is, of course, you know that I started having these these yeah, seizures yeah. of unidentifiable nature um, after. Well, my father was dead, and he. Uh, I spoke at his funeral, so it didn't begin mm-hmm. then. But it was years later, a couple of years later, when I gave a speech, and suddenly I was having this. Mm. tremor of course I also had the tremor when I was climbing a mountain so that book is really trying to trace the the symptoms through multiple disciplines but I don't think that the touch of the father is in there what is in there It was a strange experience when my father was dying that I visited him in the hospital went back home and I had this experience of, of being him mm. sick and unable to breathe and lying in the bed so my father was very important to me I certainly would not deny that and I have also even written about feelings of estrangement but it's much more dramatic and hairy
1: so what my question would have been is um how much of your own experience has gone into the
2: figure of Harriet well we didn't get to this we were talking about this earlier what I feel is this, and I've actually been they haven't been published, but I've been working on why one story and not another, which is sort of what you're asking. Why do fiction writers choose to write the stories that they do? Theoretically, you can write about anything. If I wanted to write about cats on a new planet, you know, a family of cats having interesting interactions, (laughs) I could do it. Now, I know that I would not choose to do that, but I also believe that somebody could do that really well. Um, What I think is this. In order to write a book, the reason you know that a character has to fall down or get into a fight with someone else or do whatever it is, is that it's answering some essential emotional truth in the writer. Emotional truth, not literal truth. And as I think most people are deeply aware of, writing fiction, I've always thought, is something like dreaming while awake. So there are aspects of one's writing that one has no idea where they came from. None. Zero. But you look at the page and you say to yourself, that's right. So what's right and wrong? Actually, Gerhard Richter, one of the, the things that I wrote about, he has a, a beautiful little comment about truth and rightness in, in, in his work. And that truth and rightness is ex- exactly this. It's answered by some conscious feeling that you say that's right. Why it's right, you don't know. But Antonio Damasio, the uh, neuroscientist, has something called somatic markers. It's just simply how do we make decisions? Decisions are not made by purely by logic. This is obvious. Um, They're also made by feelings, and writing a novel in that way is guided by this kind of feeling, and it is rooted in earlier experiences, but they're not always experiences that we remember or know about. So my answer to your question is that there's an internal emotional geography that is being answered by the text that you're writing, even though you can't necessarily link it to any actual autobiographical experience Thank you, um, I'm very interested in this and
1: you do it so well to look at a painting, it's a form of Gestalt psychology, you see it all at once yes. in a nano of a second Yes. but I recall reading in, I think it's these I loved, the, the very fine descriptions of paintings and installations where the image would fall into place in our minds over the course of reading a half a page or so and I, I wonder if if you were ever to write about paintings that really existed and I understand the works in that novel were imaginary. Yes. Would you draw the reader's attention to the real pictures at the end? So you would be comparing
2: the actual work with what your reader would have imagined. And, of course, each reader will imagine them differently anyway. This is so fascinating to me, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the difference between the experience of visual art, not not films, right, not anything that's sequential, is that it's there all at once however the experience of a painting say is temporal in the sense that you can't see everything all at once so that it takes time for the image to unfold so it has a temporal reality in the body of the spectator as it were what I have been interested in in novels is creating fictional works of art in words that uh, so that give enough information for the reader to create a mental image that feels convincing, but not to give so much information that the reader is suffocated. That's that's the, I think the trick. And there actually were some artists in Germany who did Bill Wexler's work. From what I loved. And, um, I, you know, I gave them my blessing. I thought it was a wonderful homage. And, uh, and they sent me images of the work. And, of course, it had nothing to do with what I, 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 you know, what, what I imagined, which was fine and, and wonderful. And I suspect that people have often said, I know just what that work looked like, and I would love to see it. And I love Bill's work, and wouldn't you like to make it? And I always think, well, you know, your work is not my work. And if I made that work, which I would have to hire a big team to do, it might be a real disappointment.
3: Thanks. You mentioned a couple of artists, um, Bourgeois and um, Jeff Koons. Um, I was just wondering if there are any other artists that sort of were directly influential in the writing the book and the characterization of the of Harry and the other artists
2: well there there are quite a few artists that are mentioned and um there is this art dealer uh burridge who at one point says that this the last work that harriet uh uh, does with a with a mask could not possibly have been done by her because Harriet's work is like he mentions Louise he mentions good artists Louise Bourgeois, Kiki Smith. You know, it's not it's not possible. And of course what he's saying, he says it's too geometric, which is of course a code for masculinity. But you know, I think I do have a, a visual imagination. I've been drawing my whole life and uh, and so these works of art, I see them. And just the way when I write novels now, I know that they're influenced, but I don't know who the hell they are. And usually when I know, for example, this book was heavily influenced by Kierkegaard. I mean, it's very different, but I'm a big Kierkegaardian, and um, I actually gave a lecture on his 200th birthday in Copenhagen. And he had a huge impact on me and um, and so there, there are a lot of references to Kierkegaard I knew I was using him but um, and I knew that Louise Bourgeois for example was a kind of haunting Harry and she has a notebook on Bourgeois um, other influences they're probably subliminal and I couldn't tell you but I would suggest that they definitely exist I just don't know what they are um,
3: I'm not quite sure if I know how to ask this question, but towards the end of the novel in particular, you started to talk about artificial intelligence. Yes, You referenced the, I think it was called the ego machine, and somehow that's caught up in, in Rune's Messenger. Messinger, yeah. Yeah, and I... Yeah. I guess I'm just curious about your feeling about that because my own response to it in the novel was a kind of horror. I'm, you know, the kind of reductionism <laughs> of yeah. what these people are yeah. trying to accomplish by yeah. pinning down our, you know, our, our our cognitive experiences. And I found just to go on for a minute, I found yeah. you know the beautiful creation of, of Margaret. You know, that last sculpture that Harry yeah. creates. Yeah. That somehow what that was saying was, you know, you cannot take away, you can you can look at our brains, we create things with our minds, we create things with our imaginations, there's little people coming out of there, but there's little people coming out of her vagina, there's little people yes. coming out of that part that you yes. cannot reduce. Right. Can, you, can you talk about that, please?
2: Yeah, there is a theme running through the book that, you know, you can pay attention to or not, which is this conflict, and I'm actually going to talk about it in just a week at a symposium uh, uh, in Italy, which is embodied theories of mind as opposed to computational theories of mind. I'm really immersed in this. And the artificial intelligence argument that comes at the very end in the voice of someone named Timothy Hardwick is my mimicking or aping these theories. I mean, I wrote it very seriously from exactly this point of view, which I think, you know, it comes out of Anglo-American analytical philosophy. It has been hugely influential in neuroscience and the way people think about the mental. And that is that mental computational uh, theories completely avoid the body so that you can have a brain in a vat, to put it simply. I think that the reason artificial intelligence has had so much difficulty actually even making a robot that walks like a human being is because they've got it wrong. So I side with Harry in this. I also think that the fantasy of things like the singularity, I don't know if anybody knows about this, Werner Vinge or vinge <laughs> i don't know probably nobody who's really interested in this comes to this to, comes to hear me but this is i think a bizarre and it, it's taken very seriously and someone like daniel dennett a very famous philosopher admits that now this stuff they have to reframe the argument and i think underlying this is a fantasy of exactly what you articulated, and Harriet says it at one point that it's a way of evading the body of the mother altogether. Yeah, yeah. And I have talked about. It. I've, I mean, I've given a lecture about precisely this.
3: I wonder if you could say a little bit more about... You said
1: that the the reader invents the the book for themselves. I I sort of might have expected you to say interprets the books, but um, I'm interested in that word, invent. You sort of answered it by saying that you give only so much information and the reader gets the image and you don't suffocate them. But how much are you conscious of the reader throughout the book? Um,
2: Well, everyone writes for another. The act of writing a book is a gift, you know, whether people want it or not, that's a whole other thing. But it's its its an act toward the other. Who that other is, is a very strange thing. It's an imaginary other. And I remember coming across this quote from Nabokov that he said he was writing for all these little Nabokovs. <laughs> and I, I love it because I see them. You know, I see, like, these Lilliputian Nabokovs. But I, I realize that in some way, of course, there is some idea of the self as other. You know, the person who's read every book you've read knows all your references, gets all your jokes, all your puns. I mean, there is some kind of kind of silly narcissistic aspect to that. But when I say that the reader invents the book, I, I think I mean that. You know, when we read, most of us we do not recall a book by remembering the text on a page. We recall the book usually through mental images, at least about 96% of us. I mean, I think there is a small percentage of people who seem to not manufacture mental images, but most of us do. And in that way, while you're reading, you're creating, in a way, an imaginary space in that old word, you know, of the image, for the text itself And those are Personal I believe And subjective uh, And they come out of your own Memory And experience with works of art With um, uh, With other people And so to, to, to that extent there's something Very particular about Textual experience That Creates a freedom in the reader, that's, I think, pretty wonderful. I mean, if you think about what do you remember from the books that you've cared about? It can be images, and it's also often emotions. Emotions keep our memories. And, uh, and I, I, it, it's an interesting thing. So that, in that sense, I mean invent. And do you think that's the case when there
1: are so many, even more the case when there are so many voices in the book? I mean, when you have a single narrator kind of guiding and taking the reader through, perhaps there's actually less piecing together and making sense of it. Yeah, Compared no, it I, like I think, this,
2: I mean, this book is intended to destabilize the reader. It was quite intentional. I mean, to destabilize the perspectives, not for the reader to not be part of it, to not enter it, And for me, you know, I wrote it, but, I mean, it was a very emotionally charged experience for me writing it. You know, being all those different people, I felt like, I, you know, I had multiple personality disorder. Again, I think it's about a kind of relaxation. But certainly having different narrators doesn't mean that people stop having mental images. But it is a destabilizing text and a very open text. So much so that I've thought about the reviews of this book as proliferations of Harry's work. (laughs) (laughs) And it it allows you a romantic ending,
1: too, doesn't it? Because sweet Autumn Pinkney, who's a very peculiar spiritual gal who sees auras and heals with chakras, and when you're introduced to her in the first earlier in the book it's a bit puzzling as to why she's there and then you realize I
2: I actually I didn't know she was I I didn't know what was going to happen to her and it's never mentioned but she's actually there's a technical word she's a synesthete so she's really seeing the colors and there are people who see emotions as colors and it's a perceptual experience projected out there in the world but of course she doesn't know that And so she has a particular relation to the emotions of others. And I realized at some point that I actually liked her. And I also realized that she was able to sense and understand aspects of emotional experience that many of the other characters couldn't. Hence, she gets the last word. But she also has distance from them. And I wanted that distance. So she's not... She's not so, I mean, yes, she's romantic in the sense that she anticipates in some way what happens to Harry's work later, and she's also giving to objects an emotional value.
3: Um, The Blazing World is the title of a kind of science fiction play by Margaret Cavendish in about the 1650s. And this was a person who was having a lot of trouble trying to break into the scientific culture of her time. She certainly was. I wondered if uh, obviously your title wasn't a coincidence but I wondered if she had engaged your imagination. Oh no,
2: I have to tell you I'm completely entranced by Margaret Cavendish and The Blazing World is a utopian fantasy that was published in 1660 and uh, Virginia Woolf actually refers to her in A Room of One's Own. She found Cavendish just Crazy, You know, just nuts. And um, she has a beautiful, beautiful metaphor about a cucumber choking all the other (laughs) vegetables in the garden. And it is hard to make one's way through Cavendish because it's really complicated, and there are poems, and and there are plays, and there's natural philosophy. The natural philosophy, it turns out, utterly fascinates me for reasons that you mentioned. She is an anti-Hobbesian, anti-mechanistic thinker who was unearthed again by feminists, mostly literary feminist scholars. But since then, because she anticipates certain movements now in both neuroscience and phenomenology, she has become important again in those philosophical circles and people are writing about her work. She was a real Monist, in other words, she didn't believe that mind and body were separate, and she had a very uh, dynamic view of matter. Again, something coming back in philosophy and in, in in neurobiology. I I think she was a she was a genius. She knew it, she was a genius. She, she's a little like Emily Dickinson, but with a much bigger reach in the world, because she published one work after another. She adored her husband, who adored and supported her. And uh, they both wrote biographies of each other. Uh, <laughs> that's great. It's great. And and The Blazing World is a kind of wonderfully energetic and mad world about this woman who becomes the queen of this kingdom. You know, she's, she's omnipotent, which is clearly one of Cavendish's fantasies which is why I chose her as the alter ego for my Harry who also has omnipotent fantasies as do many artists as do many people (laughs) Yeah. so thank you
1: very very much Siri for joining us today thank you so much for your time
2: thanks a lot thank you all for (laughs)
1: coming
0: thank you for joining us for
3: this London Review Bookshop event For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on
0: iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.